Are you all ready to study tonight? There's so much to share and so little time. And I'm going to plead with you that you please prepare your heart for what we're going to be talking about. And I'm not just talking about myself. I believe the Lord has anointed all of the speakers that have been selected for these meetings. And we need your prayers. It's an awesome task to stand before the people and to share God's truth with them. And it requires power from heaven. And so I'm going to ask and solicit your prayers for all of the speakers. But I want you to keep your ears very attentive to the things the Lord is going to share with us tonight. And the one way that I know that we will be edified is if you have your Bibles with you. Do we all have our Bibles with us? Amen. It would be a shame to come to a meeting without your textbook. You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17 in verse 5, it says, Cursed be the man that puts his trust in man and make his flesh his arm. Wouldn't it be a shame to come to a meeting like this, a holy convocation, and to come without our Bibles and to come ready to hear what a man has to say? The Bible says that anyone who does that, it's like we're preparing ourselves for a curse. When God wanted to give us nothing but blessings. The last thing you want to do when you leave these meetings is quote what any speaker has said. You only want to quote what thus saith the Lord. Amen. And the only way that we can effectively do that is we must have the word of God in our hands. And so tonight I'm going to share with you thus saith the Lord. Before we go ahead and do that, I want to pause for a word of prayer. Now it's normally my habit that I always invite the congregation to kneel with me. But I recognize that we're fairly close and squeezed together and we're on this hard asphalt and we know that some of the skirts are a little too high. So therefore, perhaps the knees might get scraped and things of that nature. But if you cannot kneel, then I'm going to ask if you could please reverently bow your heads where you are. If you're able to kneel, then you're certainly welcome to join with me as we approach the Lord's throne in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity to come together and to press together for such a meeting as this. You have brought us here for this holy convocation. And Father, before this weekend is over, we're going to understand holy convocation like we never have before. And Father, I'm just asking that you would please forgive us of our sins, that you may cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you'll teach us how to be holy and to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For we trust that by beholding him, we shall become changed into the same image. And so, Father, we come asking for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Because, Lord, I confess there is nothing that I can say to your people that can change anyone's life. And there's nothing any speaker could say. It's only by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we ask for his presence to come and may nothing in our hearts hinder him from being able to move freely within our hearts that we may even have the mind of Christ. And I start with myself. I give myself to you afresh. I pray that you'll please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I pray that you will open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of your word. For these and all other blessings we ask, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I firmly believe that we have come here for training. In other words, we have come here not to sit back and to try to treat this like some type of entertainment where we're hearing various messages and we say ooh and ah and we're tantalized by our ears, but at the end of it all, we're still not working. Our goal, brothers and sisters, is to hear something, to hear the Lord say something to us that'll cause such a drastic change in our hearts that we will leave here completely different than when we came in. And my hope and my prayer is that God is going to speak to your hearts. And we don't know where it may come. It can come through a song. It may come through the sermon. It may come through the prayer room. And it may come just through your time in secret prayer with God. So you have no idea how he's going to speak to you. So you definitely want to be attentive as it relates to what's going to take place over these next few days. But brothers and sisters, I got to tell you the truth. There is something very special that Christ wants us to understand. Jesus wants us to understand that there is a great gospel work that we are to do. And this is why in place of so much sermonizing, as the wonderful book Evangelism says in page 363, it tells us that in place of so much sermonizing, that God's people should be coming together to study text by text to know what they believe. I think it's high time to do that. How about you? And so it is that I want you to see something because Jesus wants us to go ahead and herald the wonderful message of the first, second, and third angel's message. In fact, I want us to start with that. So let's take our Bibles and we're going to go to the book of Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, God is going to make clear to you and I that this is the work that he has called us to do at such a time as this. And we will expand on this work as we go further in our study. The Bible says in Revelation, the 14th chapter. And then when you get there, I'm going to ask you to please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, here's our work in case you don't know. The Bible says in Revelation 14, starting at verse 6, John the Revelator, he says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. There followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name... Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus Christ. This is the wonderful herald of the first, the second, and the third angel's message. And this is a message which is a call of preparation. The same way John the Baptist, when he went throughout the world and he was preparing people for the first advent of Jesus Christ, he gave a message that was to prepare the people For the coming of the Lord. And yours and my work is the very same work, brothers and sisters. Our work is to prepare a people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's our work. That's our mission. 
And this mission is accomplished through this threefold gospel message. Now, what's interesting is that if you look carefully at the first, second, and third angel's message, you should see something different in it. It is interesting that there's a great call that God wants us to make, but I want you to see how the Bible brings it out as we look again at the first angel's message. The Bible says when it comes to the first angel's message, I want you to look at it in verse 7. After John says, I saw another angel, and he's flying in the midst of heaven, and he has this everlasting gospel to preach. Notice what it says in verse 7. The Bible says in Revelation 14, 7, saying with a what? Loud voice. Is that right? A loud voice. Now, let's go to the third angel's message in verse 9. It says in verse 9, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice. Now, brothers and sisters, here's my question. What do you believe is different about the first and the third when you compare it to the second? The first angel's message is said with what kind of voice? Loud voice. The third angel's message is said with what kind of voice? A loud voice. When you look at the second angel's message, is there a loud voice? No, there is not. There's no loud voice. But then when we go to Revelation, the 18th chapter, notice what the Bible says here now. Let's go to Revelation, the 18th chapter. In Revelation chapter 18, you see, it is not ironic that God put it together this way. Because when we understand Adventist history, we will begin to see why the second angel's message at first could not have been done with a loud voice. But by the time we get to this point, notice what the Bible says in Revelation, the 18th chapter. In Revelation, the 18th chapter, notice what the Bible says, starting in verse 1. And if you're there, please let me know by saying amen. Amen. The Bible says, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was what? Lightened with his glory. And he cried, how? Mightily with a strong voice. Saying, Babylon is fallen, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Here it is that by time we get to this second angel's message being repeated, now it is no longer being said simply with a voice, but the Bible says it's being said with a mighty strong voice. Is that right? So therefore, we know that this is what the Bible is. This is what is referred to as the loud cry. And this is the great work that God is preparing us even now to get ready to do as we prepare to give the first, second and third angels message in its fullness. But brothers and sisters, here's the thing that's interesting. If a man wants to learn how to play golf, he probably would go to Tiger Woods to learn it. Would you agree? And one of the reasons why you would probably agree is because to date, he still seems to be the best when it comes to that sport. When it comes to someone who wants to play basketball, people will say Michael Jordan or LeBron James or somebody like that because they'll say, well, that person obviously is the best at the game. What about when it comes to preaching the gospel? When it comes to the preaching of the gospel, who is it that you and I can look to as a model to know how we can do it and give it with such force like he did it? Who else would it be that would teach us? Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, because of the fact that Jesus is the one best qualified to show us how to herald the gospel message in such a way that it can win souls to him. 
then I wonder what was the great methodology that Jesus used when he gave his gospel message. Notice what the Bible says in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, I want you to see what the Bible says. Because God wants to prepare us to give the loud cry message to this entire world, to give the gospel in its greatest power and fullness to the point that we look like angels lighting up the world with God's glory. This is what God wants to do through you and I. And if we're going to give the gospel message with power, we have to look to the one who had power when he gave it. And that's none other than Jesus. Notice what the Bible says in Mark chapter 1. And when you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Mark, the first chapter, we're looking at the methodology. What was it? How was it that Jesus gave the gospel message and he did it with such power that when people heard him, they could say, never have we heard anybody preach the message like this. Even the scribes and Pharisees cannot teach like how Jesus teaches. Notice what the Bible says in Mark, the first chapter. If you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says in Mark chapter 1. Now, I want you to catch this. We're going to look at verse 14. Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. And I want you to see something significant about Jesus's method of how he preached the gospel and why it was so powerful in winning people to him. Notice what the Bible says in Mark 1 and verse 14. It says, now, after that John was put in prison, it says Jesus came into Galilee. What was he doing? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So was Jesus preaching the gospel? Yes, he was. Now look at verse 15. In verse 15, it says something special. And saying, what did he say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and do what? Believe the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, what would you say that you notice in the verse about Jesus's methodology of how he went about preaching the gospel? What would you say you saw? He pointed to time. Jesus always preached the gospel based on time. Jesus always preached the gospel based on prophecy. No wonder the book Evangelism, page 196, tells us so clearly that ministers of the gospel are to present the sure word of prophecy of the books of Daniel and Revelation to the people. And then it tells us that in the, in the presentation of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, we are to connect the words, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Amen. Prophecy is the very foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist church. The sanctuary in connection with prophecy is the very foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And Jesus, our methodology model, he was the one that understood this better than most. And so it is that when Christ gave his gospel message, he preached the message based on time. And you want to know why Jesus did that? The reason Jesus did that, brothers and sisters, is because Jesus understood something about time. You see, when people understand time, brothers and sisters, there's something that is supposed to take place. In fact, I want you to see what the Bible says as we go to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 12. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, you and I are going to understand what is the very benefit of time anyhow. Why is it that we should even preach a gospel message based on time? I'm going to show you why. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe that when we look at the children of Israel... We know that each tribe represents a certain characteristic. And I have no doubt that 
there are many individuals in this room that may have characteristics of certain tribes of Israel. But one thing that I believe many of us would benefit from is understanding something about the tribe of Issachar. And I want you to see something very special about the tribe of Issachar as we understand this topic of time. Why is it that preaching the gospel message based on time is so important? Let us notice what the Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And I want you to go ahead and consider verse 32. And when you get there, please let me know by saying amen. amen. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32, notice what it says. It says, and of the children of who? Issachar, it says, which were men that had understanding of the what? Times, read the next sentence with me. It says, to know what Israel ought to do. That is the great benefit of understanding time. When an individual understands time, they know what they're supposed to be doing right now. The great challenge, brothers and sisters, I believe and I submit unto you today is one of the reasons why there's so much confusion in even Seventh-day Adventism, let alone the whole world of Christianity, is because there's a whole bunch of people that are doing a bunch of things where they are completely ignorant of what time it is. And God wants us to understand what time it is so that way if we can best understand what time it is, then we know exactly what to do. Now, because Jesus preached his message based on time, do you think Jesus knew what to do? Yes, he did. And can I show you what Jesus wanted to do? I want to show you what Jesus did, and I want to show you what was the great focus of Jesus. Because, brothers and sisters, if we're going to be successful in giving the gospel message to the entire world, we need to do what Jesus did. Amen? Amen. So now I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of John, the fourth chapter. In John, the fourth chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says. Christ always understood time. He understood that when he came on the scene and when he was anointed, he knew that there was just a few short years before the children of Israel's probation closed. And therefore, he understood that time is almost finished. And as a result of that, it literally controlled his behavior. And I want you to see how the Bible brings it out in John, the fourth chapter. What was the behavior of Jesus? Notice what the Bible says in John, the fourth chapter. If you're there, say amen. Look at what the Bible says right here. John chapter 4. It says in John 4, you remember Jesus met with that woman at the well. And of course, he was educating her and helping her to understand true worship. And as he was doing that, he got to a point where obviously the disciples thought to themselves, certainly the master has to be hungry. He got to eat. After all, he is flesh. He needs to eat. And so it is that look at how the Bible brings this out now. In John, the fourth chapter, notice what the Bible says as we look at verse 30. It says, then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, master, do what? Eat. He says, but he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. What was this meat Jesus was talking about? Look at what it says next. Verse 33. Therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him aught to eat? In verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do what? The will of my father, of him that sent me, and to do what else? To finish his work. This was the meat that Jesus was partaking of. This is the first time as a health reformer I can stand before the people of God and encourage meat eating. <laughs> this is the meat that you and I should be partaking of on a daily basis. The Bible clearly says that the meat that Jesus loved to eat and to partake of was to do the will of his father 
and to finish his work. Brothers and sisters, that needs to be our focus. We need to be absolutely consumed with the reality that I must do the will of him that has sent me and I must finish the work. This is the great goal. This is what God wants to accomplish in every single one of his people. He wants to get us to a point in our experience that the work can be finished. Our mission here, brothers and sisters, is not to maintain the work. You know what concerns me? It's when somebody says, you know, I'll see you at the next conference next year. That sounds like somebody that might just want to maintain the work. But Christ's mission, brothers and sisters, was to finish the work. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that you and I are in control of time more than we could ever understand? We can actually hasten the Lord's return. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he will put our backs against the wall and let us truly see if our words are true or false. There are so many individuals that are longing and saying in their hearts, oh, I want Jesus to come. I want Jesus to come. Come, Lord Jesus. But brothers and sisters, it's amazing how all we have to do is give certain distinct testing truths to individuals that came from the lips of Jesus. And all of a sudden people say, well, I don't want to go ahead and follow that. And all of a sudden we become partial. Individuals start setting up all their private goals and aspirations, and therefore we become partial. And no longer are we saying, come Lord Jesus, we start talking about see you next year and the year after that. And let's start planning for 2015 and 20, and the list goes on. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' passion was to finish the work, not to maintain it. And you and I have to plead with God, Lord, put that passion in my heart. Put that passion in my heart and help me. To truly understand that time is almost finished. You see, go to the book of Matthew chapter 24. There was something Jesus wanted to bring to our attention that would help us to really start getting a gauge on time. I believe that one of the things that can help an individual miss on time is when they oversleep. And the Bible says in Matthew, the 24th chapter. It says something very interesting that we would do well to consider as we consider Matthew 24, starting at verse 1. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, see not all these things. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Notice what he says next in verse 7. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now when Jesus made these points here, And he began to talk about all of these events, calamities, and all these different things that were taking place all throughout the world. He said that you and I were supposed to pay attention to it. It was supposed to be as harbingers to let us know that the king is even at the door. And as we understood time, it should dictate to us what to do. Is that right? 
So therefore, Christ gave us signs of the times so that way we can understand. Now, one of the great things that he said in verse 8 is he says, all these were the beginning of what? Sorrows. Now, when you look that up in the Greek, it talks about the beginning of what? Birth pains. Amen. So therefore, we understand. Now, I'm a father of four and I happen to see birth pain. My wife go through these things called birth pains at least four times. And the one thing that I know for a fact is that the first birth pain is not like the last. That first birth pain may come at a certain pace, but when that baby is about to be born, it gets much, much more what? Rapid. It gets much, much more intense. It gets much, much more volume nine of the testimonies. The final movements will be rapid ones. So therefore, as we begin to understand not just the events that took place, not just simply saying, oh, there was an earthquake here or a tornado there, but it's when we begin to see the rapidity of these events, this is to let us know what time it is. And then as we understand what time it is, then Israel should know what to do. And therefore, I wonder, has there been some harbingers that have been happening at rapid pace? that God could help us understand a little bit better what time it is? You see, brothers and sisters, what I want you to do is I want you to consider this. When you think about natural disasters that took place, I'm just going to show you just over the past few years. In 1999, there was something called the torrential rains and mudslides in Venezuela. When that took place, brothers and sisters, it brought forth a death toll of 15,100 precious souls. But then after that, in 2001, there was the Gujarat earthquake in India. That took a death toll of 20,000 precious souls. And then after that, there was a 2003 European heat wave in Western Europe that took 37,451 precious souls. You're talking about rapid birth pains. Then after that, there was the 2005 Kashmir earthquake in Pakistan. That one took 86,000 precious souls. Then after that, there was a Sichuan earthquake in China, which took 69,197 precious souls. But then after that, there was a 2008 Cyclone Negris in Myanmar, and brothers and sisters, that took 146,000 precious souls. But then even after that, you remember that there was also, of course, that great tsunami in 2004, where it took 229,866 people died in just one day. They were all swept away as these calamities started to happen. It was as if we were watching the words of Jesus being fulfilled. We were watching the birth pains. Then there was the earthquake in Haiti in 2007, which had a death toll of 92,000 individuals. People who were just dying, brothers and sisters, and being wiped out. In fact, do you know that MSN put out an article? It was in, they said 2010 was, was when the world went wild. That was actually what they put in the article. They said, this was the year the earth struck back. It says earthquakes, heat waves. Now I want you to hold on to that. It says earthquakes, heat waves, floods, volcanoes, super typhoons, blizzards, landslides, droughts killed at least a quarter million people in just 2010 alone. And then it goes on to say that the deadliest year in more than a generation, more people were killed worldwide by natural disasters this year than have been killed in terrorism attacks in the past 40 years combined. So here it is that we were watching all of these calamities that were taking place. And then, of course, you know, when this year got started, of course, we had that horrible tsunami that took place in Japan, which also took approximately 18,000 precious souls again. And then watching all of these different things, here's what I found to be interesting. While I saw that all of these natural disasters were moving in such a frequent base, the question is simply this, where is it going? 
What's it all leading to? What happens next? And the reason why this became so significant to my mind is because the more that we start studying prophecy so that we can understand time, so that we can know what to do, brothers and sisters, do you know one thing that came to my mind? I got to confess. One of the things that came to my mind was the economy. And I started wondering about it because think about it. Every time it seems that a calamity hit, it was like the debt levels just kept going up. And as the more and more calamities and the more and more areas were getting wiped out is the more and more money that had to be put out to try to bring forth relief. And there was all of this debt accumulation that was taking place. And we're seeing all of these things. We see the crisis in 2008 where we all of a sudden go down financially and we entered into this financial crisis. And I often wondered, is there anywhere in prophecy that we can find that? Is there somewhere in the Bible that can help us see the economic crisis and its direct connection to the calamities? You know, brothers and sisters, I'm so glad that we have a sure word of prophecy. That we would do well to take heed unto it as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until that day dawns. The day star, Jesus Christ, arises in our hearts. I want you to think about this. When you look at Matthew 24 and verse 29, let's turn there. In Matthew chapter 24, let's notice something the Bible says. Matthew, the 24th chapter. And when you get there, please say amen. Amen. In Matthew 24, the Bible showed us something as it relates to prophecy and things that were leading to the second coming of Christ. Now, if you and I are students of prophecy, then that means that we should be keeping our eyes on this. Amen. So now look at what the Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 29. It says... Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the what happen? The sun be darkened. What else? The moon shall not give her light. What else? And the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the what? The sign of the son of man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And it goes on to say, And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, my first question is this. Did that happen already? Did the sun already get dark? Did the moon already cease to give its light? Was there already stars that fell from heaven? Yes. So therefore, I want you to look at this. We have in this prophecy, the order would go like this. We would have sun, moon, stars, and then second coming. Do we see that in that prophecy right there? Okay, so therefore we see that thus far, just from if we just looked at it naked from Matthew 24 to 29, we would see that there's the sun being darkened, the moon didn't give her light, and then the stars. This is, of course, when we're dealing with 1780, 1833, and the list goes on. This should be fundamental Adventism prophecy, prophecy 101. We talk about the great dark day, the moon turned and gave the color of blood, and then, of course, the stars fell. If you go to Alabama, you'll see right there on their license plate where it says stars fell because of the fact that they were recognizing this time of prophecy. So therefore, this is prophecy 101 right here. But now I want you to see something. Wouldn't you and I agree that something had to be sandwiched right here? If the last event took place as approximately 1833, you mean to tell me there was nothing else that was going to happen between 1833 and the second coming of Jesus? No, brothers and sisters, there had to be something else. So therefore, now what I want you to do is I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, we find the same event. But this one gives us a little more detail. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation, the sixth chapter. In Revelation, the sixth chapter. Now, let's see what the Bible says here as we consider verse 12. It is talking about the same events of what we just saw in Matthew 24, 29. But tell me if you see something different. 
Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to go ahead and look at verse 12. It says, And I beheld, when he had opened the what seal? The sixth seal. It says, And lo, there was a what? A great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the king of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Why? For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, in Revelation 6, do we see something different from what we saw in Matthew 24? Is there something that is added to the puzzle? What do we see added to the puzzle? There was also an earthquake. Is that right? So therefore, if we were to look at Revelation 6, 12, we would see that there's an earthquake then the sun, then the moon, then the stars, and then the second coming. But brothers and sisters, we still have a problem because we're still sandwiched in between here. There has to be something else that takes place in between here, between the stars falling and the second coming that can help us better understand time so we can know what to do. So therefore, we have no choice but to go to the book of Luke, the 21st chapter. And when we go to Luke chapter 21, let's notice what the Bible says here. Luke chapter 21. In Luke, the 21st chapter, we find that God gave us another piece to the puzzle that will help us better understand what time it is. The Bible says in Luke, the 21st chapter. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Luke chapter 21, now we're looking at verses 25 to 27. And in Luke 21, 25 to 27, let's read the account here. And you tell me once again, if you see something different, the Bible says in Luke 21, 25 through 27, it says, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth. What distress of nations with what else with perplexity, the sea and the waves, what roaring. Men's heart failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Question. What do we see in this account that we did not see in the other accounts? We saw that there is a distress of nations with what? perplexity and then we also saw that the sea and the waves would be roaring now the reason why this becomes very significant is because if we were to look at it now we see sun moon stars distress of nations with perplexity sea and waves roaring and then we have the second coming again so now we see what was sandwiched in between the middle of the prophecy is that right now here's the thing that i thought was interesting what does the word perplexity mean because it talks about the nations are going to be distressed. And it says they're going to be distressed with something called perplexity. What is it that the term perplexity means? And you know what I did? I looked up the word perplexity. You know what I found out? The first thing I found out was this. It comes from this Greek word, aporia. And you know what it means? To be in a quandary. You know what a quandary is? 
state of confusion. You don't know what's going on. You're just confused. You're, you're, you're in distress because you're just hung up and you don't know what's happening next. But then here's what I thought was so deep. Do you know that the very same word for quandary, that there's a word, there's a root word that the word quandary comes from or perplexity. You want to know what that root word is? It's not aporia like that. It is this word, aporio. Look at what aporio means. It means to be in a quandary as a result of lack of resources. Individuals are not just in a state of confusion. They're not just in a state of unrest. They're not just in a state of distress for the sake of being in it. Brothers and sisters, they're in this state because they have noticed that there is a lack of resources. And as a result of this lack of resources, brothers and sisters, it has brought forth a tremendous crisis. And you know why I thought that that was so deep? Because my next question was, Father, where is this going? And I want to show you where it's going. Inspiration says, in accidents and calamities by sea and by land. Did we just read about that? It says, in accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes, in terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. Watch this. It says, he sweeps away the ripening harvest and famine and distress follow. It goes on to say, he imparts to the air a deadly taint, and thousands perish by the pestilence. These visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. Watch this. And then the great deceiver, this is where it's all leading to. It says, and then the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. You see, you and I, we can meet and have fun together in these holy convocations. But brothers and sisters, you and I would do well to make sure that we have a serious walk with our Savior. Because a time is coming and is soon upon us upon which God's people are going to be recognized as public enemy number one. It says that and then the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. It says the class that have provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandments is a perpetual reproof to transgressors. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath. It says That this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced. It says, and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people. Watch this. Preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. Now, you know what that tells me? That tells me many things. Great Controversy 590. That tells me many things. One of the first things that tells me is that, brothers and sisters, now we can see where the calamities are going. What that tells me is that now we can see what time it is. What that tells me is that now I can understand the economic crisis and all of these different calamities and all of these different things and how it's affecting our world and our society, even our country. And brothers and sisters, we can see clearly through the prophetic eye exactly where it's going. Now, What I also see is that I do not care, and I say this with all respect, I really do, 
President Barack Obama, he can try to put together all the plans he wants. Inspiration shows us that the only way temporal prosperity is going to come back is when they try to pass a Sunday law. They can go ahead and try to build up and say, oh, yes, we're going to have a comeback and we're going to do this, that and the other. Volume nine of the testimonies to the church, page 13, says that even statesmen can go ahead and try to remedy the issues that are taking place in our government. But she says, but they will labor in vain. God wants us to understand what time it is, because when we understand time, we know what to do. And brothers and sisters, I can tell you the truth. Time is almost finished. And the reason why we can see that time is almost finished is because watch this right here. You remember in 1999 that Pope John Paul II, he put out an article called D.S. Domini. This was when he wanted to go ahead and encourage Sunday laws to be set up. And I want you to look at the rationale that was used that he included in his letter. Look at this. It says, when through the centuries she has made laws concerning Sunday rest. It's talking about the Church of Rome. It says, the church has had in mind above all the work of servants and workers, certainly not because this work was any less worthy when compared to spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burden and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's day holy. In other words, they said the best way to pass a Sunday, Sunday law is focus on the family. Focus on the family. Not that the spiritual requirement. You see where they said that? They said not, that it, not because this work was any less worthy when compared to the spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burden and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's day holy. So they are acknowledging the fact, listen, we have spiritual requirements for why people should keep Sunday holy. But to get the best success in passing a Sunday law, the, what we need to do is we need to focus on the family. Let that be our rationale. Let that be our reasoning of how we're going to establish Sunday laws. Now watch this. It says, in this matter, my predecessor, Pope Leo XIII, in his encyclical Rerum Novorum, spoke of Sunday rest as a worker's right which the state must guarantee. Now watch this. Therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our own time, Christians will naturally, now this is what Pope John Paul was pushing for. He said, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation, in other words, go to law, and it says that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Now God's people with the prophetic eye should have been paying attention to this to say how close is close. How close are we getting to it? Why? Because every single time we understand time, we know what to do. Now watch this. Here's what's interesting. This was July 19th, 2011. This is basically just a month or so ago. It says Sunday should be a day for worship, rest, and time with family and friends. It says said Monsignor Miguel Delgado Galindo under secretary for the Pontifical Council for the Laity. It says the church teaches us to set aside this day, the first day of the week, on which we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ for divine worship and for human rest, the Monsignor recently told CNA. It says on Sundays, Catholics should participate in the Holy Mass, the unbloody renewal of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and the greatest expression of worship and adoration that man can offer to the Lord our God, he said. Sunday should also be a day devoted to what? Rest with family and friends. It's interesting. Same method, same tactic. 
Now watch this. It says, Monsignor Galindo underscored the importance of Blessed John Paul II, 1998 apostolic letter, Dies Domini. Wait a minute. He referred back to Dies Domini, which was the letter. Now we saw in that letter that the letter was pushing everybody to go to civil legislation to establish a Sunday law. And this is interesting because now he's pointing individuals back to D.S. Domini saying that this is what we should follow. He says, which exhorts the bishops, the clergy, the lay faithful to keep Sunday holy and to treat it as the Lord's day. We need to realize that we need more time with family and friends. It is hard to give them time during the week because of our professional and social commitments. He noted Sunday rest is a human necessity. Now, with this being right before our very eyes, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand something. You see, sometimes people say, Brother Lemon, I can't see how this would take place. And do you know, go to the book of Revelation 13. Let me show you something here. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, I want you to see something. You remember that in Revelation 13, you know that the devil will counterfeit what God does. Is that right? Now, notice what the Bible says in Revelation, the 13th chapter. In Revelation 13, we know that America, in verse 11, is going to come into the scene. And America is now going to try to bring everybody back to Rome. Now, I want you to see what the Bible says in Revelation 13, in verse 13. This is one of the methodologies that Satan will use to try to get everybody to buy into a Sunday law being passed. Watch this. It says in Revelation 13, 13, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh what? Fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, who do we know who did that? That was none other than Elijah. Is that right? So we see that Satan is going to counterfeit the very works that God did at one time. And he's going to use it as a means and as a tool to go ahead and draw people to buy into his delusions. Amen. Now, the reason why I bring that up is notice what the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 13. He's going to, once again, he's just going to use the tactic, the same method, but he's just going to flip the script. The same way he's going to use fire coming down from heaven. Let me show you another method he's going to use. Revelation 13. I'm sorry, Nehemiah 13. In Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, notice what the Bible says here. Nehemiah chapter 13. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. Now, in Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, watch this. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 13, and we're going to go ahead and look at verse 17 for time's sake. Nehemiah is bringing forth to the people Sabbath reform. The people started to violate God's Sabbath. They were profaning God's Sabbath, and God was working through Nehemiah to bring about Sabbath reform. And I want you to see what it says in verse 17. In verse 17, Nehemiah, it says... Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, they were buying and selling on the Sabbath day. He says, what evil thing is this that ye do and do what? Profane the Sabbath day. Now look at verse 18 carefully. Did not your fathers thus and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by doing what? Profaning the Sabbath. Do you mean to tell me that Israel as a nation would suffer because they were breaking the Sabbath? Is that what the Bible just showed us? That Israel as a nation would suffer because they were violating and breaking God's Sabbath? 
And so it is that Ellen White was right when she says that this is all that the beast power is going to do. They're going to look at it. They're going to look at this world. They're going to look at our economy. They're going to look at the calamities. They're going to look at everything taking place around them. And they're going to say, you know what? There was a time in the Bible that because the people were breaking the Sabbath, the nation suffered. And the same way Nehemiah had to go about and bring about Sabbath reform, they're going to say, you know what? Let's do the same thing. And this is what God wanted us to see, and this is what's taking place right now. And you know what's so sad, brothers and sisters? While this is taking place right now, do you know that this is the time that God's people should be most alert? Do you know that this is the time that God's people should be most aware? But do you want to know what the reality is? Notice this. It says this. When the Sunday law test comes to us, brothers and sisters, we are either going to receive the seal of God or the mark of the beast. Amen? Watch this. It says the seal of God will never be placed upon the forehead of an impure man or woman. It says it will never be placed upon the forehead of the ambitious, world-loving man or woman. It will never be placed upon the forehead of men or women of false tongues or deceitful hearts. All who receive the seal must be what? Without spot when? Before God. Now, brothers and sisters, you know why I found this to be very important? Because, brothers and sisters, let me ask you something. What is the seal of God? Where do we find that wonderful seal? Do we find it in God's Sabbath truth? Yes, we do. Now, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. There are some Seventh-day Adventists that actually believe that as long as I understand the Sabbath and as long as I can clearly see what the Sabbath is and as long as I can intellectually confess the Sabbath truth, then you know what that must mean? That must mean that I am indeed a Sabbath keeper and I therefore have the seal of God. But brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, that is a gross deception. You want to know why? Because there were two things that the Sabbath was supposed to do. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, notice what the Bible says. In Genesis, the second chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says right here. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to go ahead and look at verses 1 and 2 and 3. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at the Sabbath very quickly. In Genesis chapter 2, notice what the Bible says in verses 1, 2, and 3. The Bible says, thus... The heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to, I want to ask you a question. Was the Sabbath, the Sabbath, because of an incomplete work or because of a completed work. The Sabbath is the Sabbath because it, rep- it, rec- it represents a work that was completed. Amen? So therefore, the Sabbath truth is not just something that God wants us to understand in our mind, but he wants us to enter into it in our experience. The Sabbath is a sign. Amen? Does Ezekiel twenty twenty tell us that? Now, brothers and sisters, do you know, does a sign have one purpose or two purposes? What would you say? Does a sign have one purpose or two purposes? Okay, you, don't, you sound very confused. Let me ask you this. How many of you, by the raise of hands, would say a sign serves one purpose? All right. How many of us, by the raise of hands, would say a sign serves two purposes? How many of us say, I have no idea? 
All right, good. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt, a sign serves two purposes. Here are the two purposes. And I'm going to use a stop sign as the easiest example. You and I, number one, when we're driving down the road, when we see a stop sign, the first thing we have to do is see it and understand what those words S-T-O-P mean. Is that right? Okay, so that means that there needs to be an intellectual understanding of that sign. But watch this. Do you know anybody who had an intellectual understanding of the stop sign but missed its experience? Are you getting it? You can see what the sign says. You can understand intellectually what this sign means. You can proof text all day long and say, here's the Sabbath truth, the Sabbath truth, the Sabbath truth. But the question is, have you entered into its experience? What is the experience of the Sabbath? It represented a what kind of work? A complete or a finished work. In fact, if some of you were to look in your Bibles in Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2, you would see when it talks about, when, when it talks about the Sabbath being finished, it actually uses the term in, the, in your margin, depending on what Bible you have, where it says brought to perfection. Does anybody have that in their Bible? Does anyone have that one, that margin? It says it right there, that it was brought to perfection. Now, the reason why I bring that point up is this. What Jesus is trying to bring across to yours in my mind is that he's saying, I can see clearly that time is almost finished. I can see clearly that soon and very soon we are getting ready to face not the first test, but the final test. And Jesus is saying that when my people are getting ready to face a final test, he is saying to you and I that the thing that he wants to see before that test comes is that the work must be finished in my people. So that way, when the test comes to them, they will pass and they will be crowned with my seal. And the reality is that the seal cannot fall on anyone unless they are without spot. You see, brothers and sisters, what Christ is trying to say to all of us is that there must be an experience with Jesus before the Sunday law test comes to us that we need to have right now. Because brothers and sisters, if we could clearly understand that we are right around the corner of a Sunday law being passed, and then if we look at our hearts and we can say, truly, in my heart, I can see that I'm still harboring sins in my life. I still have sins that so easily beset me. I still have darling sins that I am playing with and toying with, even making excuses for. If you and I are having experiences where we're holding on to sin during a time that we should be letting it go so that Christ in the most holy place may blot it out. And we testify we have no idea what time it is. Jesus is trying to say there's a work that I want to complete in you. Before that test comes, because brothers and sisters, you can't be incomplete. You know, we can understand this on a natural level. You do not go and take a final in school and you have not studied the subject and have not fully understood that subject. Is that right? It would be foolish to do that. Now, I know that there's foolish people in this world, but it would be foolish to do that. Is that right? Now, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is trying to say is that I'm trying to bring you into an experience with me, an experience of total, complete surrender to the point that you love me so much, as much as I love you, that you would prefer to die than commit even one single 
sin against me. In the highest sense, that is the faith of Jesus. And Jesus says that this is the experience I'm trying to bring you into. And do you know that this is the message that we are to give to the whole world right now? This is the message that we are to do to tell the world that there's a work that is about to be completed in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary during this investigative judgment. And we need to make sure that we are ready. You know why this is so important to me? Because I want you to look at this. God's purpose in giving the third angel's message to the world is to prepare people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Our message is to prepare people to stand true to him. But look at this. This is the purpose for which we establish and maintain our publishing houses. Do you know the whole purpose of the publishing houses is to put together literature? You know, we talk about literature evangelism with with Souls West. And praise God for literature evangelism. Amen? Amen. We're told in the book Evangelism, page 547, that the threefold work that's going to finish the work is literally gospel ministry, medical missionary work, and the publishing work. And the very last sentence of that paragraph is she says, one is not to supersede the other. But with our publishing houses, the only literature that should be put together, brothers and sisters, is the kind of literature that can help people to be true to God during the investigative judgment. Now, brothers and sisters, that would mean that we would have to investigate a lot of literature that comes from our publishing houses. We would have to take some of that literature and start to put a return seal on it and send it right back with UPS and let them know that we can't accept that because that has nothing to do with preparing a people on how to stand during the time of the investigative judgment. Somebody said, but what about health books? How does health books do it? Brothers and sisters, are you kidding me? When we begin to understand that what we do, what you and I put inside of our bodies gets broken down into blood and the blood is to feed the brain the brain houses the mind the mind is what Romans seven twenty five says we serve the law of God with so therefore the reason why we do produce health books the reason why we do produce cooking books and all these different things is so that we can show people how to eat and drink to the glory of God so that way they can put that which is in their system that can feed good blood so that the blood can strengthen the brain, so that the mind can be clear, so that when Christ downloads present truth from the most holy place, our minds will be able to understand it and we can follow that truth and faithfully share it with other people. But it's not only the publishing houses. It says our schools. Do you know the purpose of our schools was to make people true to God during the time of the investigative judgment? Do you know, brothers and sisters, it is literally possible to get a Ph.D. and a master's degree and never understand anything about the investigative judgment in our schools. Do you know that that's true? You see, what I'm trying to show you is that we are living in a time, brothers and sisters, where we should have understood time so that we rightfully know what to do. But brothers and sisters, we can see clearly that we are sleeping during a time we should be awake. There is no way that if our schools understood the great work that God has called us to do, there would be no way that we would spend God's money to invite bishops and all these other individuals to come to our universities from churches that constitute Babylon 
to try to teach us how to do the work of bringing people into the most holy place. There is no bishop, there is no pastor, there is no priest that comes from Babylon that can show God's people how to get inside the most holy place. We are testifying by our behavior that we're sleeping during a time that God should have us be awake. It's not just our schools, it's our sanitariums. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that when you go to many of our sanitariums today, do you know that Councils on Diets and Foods, page 75, says that in the presentation of health principles, it says that we should never, never disconnect the gospel from the health work. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that there are many of our sanitariums today that are simply teaching sick sinners how to become healthy, vibrant, strong sinners? And that was never God's mission. When God raised up the sanitarium, it was designed to show people how they can be true to God during the time of the investigative judgment. And the only way you can do that is when you have health reform connected to the third angel's message. But it's not just that. It says even our hygienic restaurants. Brothers and sisters, do you know how many seven-day Adventists have restaurants today? And we have gotten so caught up in trying to save money and we'll buy some of the cheapest products that just because it's not made from an animal. But brothers and sisters, a lot of times it has so much preservatives and everything else inside of it that is clogging up our body, our mind, and our arteries just almost as bad as the meat. The hygienic restaurants were designed and they understood that even when we serve food, this was supposed to be a ministry. Today, you got Seventh-day Adventists calling themselves vegans. Brothers and sisters, you are not vegans. Vegans don't like to wear leather. (laughs) Vegans don't like to take honey from the bee kingdom because they say that damages the bee kingdom. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, Proverbs 24, 13, it says, eat thou honey because it's good. So God is saying to all of us, he's saying, listen, this is not, you are not vegans. You know what you are? You're health reformers. Next time somebody talks to you, you don't tell them you're a vegan. You tell them I'm a health reformer. They say, what's that? You say, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) You open up your Bible and you bring them truth as it is in Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what a health reformer does. But our restaurants, do you know even our food factories I mean, brothers and sisters, do you understand that every mode, it says this is our purpose in carrying forward every line of work in the cause. And what God is trying to help us see is that we're way off mark. We're way off the mark. It's amazing how we can run revelation seminar after revelation seminar. It's amazing how we can do so many prophetic utterings. But at the end of the day, we're still missing the experience. Desire of Ages, page 309, says the great mistake of the Pharisees is that they thought that an intellectual understanding of truth constituted righteousness. It's a lot of SDAs like that. They think that the more theologically sound they are is the more right they must be with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need an experience with Jesus. We got to take it from the theory to the experience. We got to live this message. Amen. And you want to know why, brothers and sisters, I say that to you? I want to bring these final points out as we close. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that we are told when, reli- when the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when his law is most despised. Now, when do you think God's law is most despised? It's going to be during that time of that Sunday law. Amen. Can I show you what's going to happen to seven day Adventists at the time of the Sunday law? Look at what it says. It says 
when his laws most despised, it says, then should our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching to stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. Going to be a great exodus in the Seventh-day Adventist church. A great exodus. Many of us, many of our own people, many of our own people, we're professing a high thing. We're professing a high truth. We love to talk about it. But the question is, brothers and sisters, are you and I experiencing that sign? It says to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. This will be our test. It says the nation will be on the side of the great rebel leader. What would cause the majority of God's people to turn their backs on Jesus? You want to know what it is? As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, watch this, but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. It says, abandon their position, join ranks with the opposition, and they become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. You see, brothers and sisters, we must understand. We must enter into the experience. You know, if I would ask you all, how many of you know the first, second, and third angels' message? You know how many people would raise their hand? Some of you probably would say, Brother Lemon, why are you reading the three angels' message? We know this by memory. But brothers and sisters, that's the point. Has it left your memory and entered your heart yet? Do you know the three angels' messages? That's good. But the deeper question is, are you experiencing it? It's not enough to know the first angel, the second and the third. Are you experiencing the first angel's message? Are you experiencing the second angel's message? Are you experiencing that third angel's message? That's the key. And brothers and sisters, Christ wants us to understand that this is the reason why so many people are going to miss out because they refuse to be sanctified by obedience to this truth that they have confessed with all their hearts. And brothers and sisters, all I can say to you is this. While we may be in a bad condition, you see, this is the reason why we need a revival and reformation. I always tell people I was in Romania and I sat down with the conference president, the Southern Transylvania conference president. And I sat down with him and his staff and they said, well, Brother Lemon, I said, I said, are you men in agreement with the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists that we need a revival and reformation? They said, yes, we, we are in agreement. I said, so then you understand that you're spiritually dead. The only people that need revival are people who are spiritually dead. That's literally how Sister White describes it. She says, a revival is a quickening and the bringing up from the spiritual death. That's the word she uses. Don't get mad at me. I'm repeating the prophet. <laughs> we must understand, brothers and sisters, that the reason we need revival and reformation is because we are spiritually dead, if not spiritually dying. And God is trying to say that time is almost finished. And he wants us to understand what time it is so that we can know what to do. You want to know what we should do? Go to Romans, the 13th chapter. Romans, the 13th chapter. In Romans chapter 13, the Bible tells us exactly what to do. The Bible says in that verse 
11, Romans 13 and verse 11. The Bible says, and that knowing the time, that now it is what? High time. To do what? To awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The question is, is, all right, I'm supposed to wake up, but what am I waking up to? 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, we find out exactly what we are to awake to. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34. And when you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Sin not. You know, there's only one thing that Jesus is waiting for. He's waiting to develop a people. What Christ wants to do with all of us, brothers and sisters... People often ask, why is it that Jesus has not come yet? Why hasn't he come? The reason that he has not come, brothers and sisters, I will answer in a short little story. A mother is preparing for Sabbath. She's preparing for Sabbath and she gets to a point that the house is all straightened up. And she starts mopping that floor because she wants to hurry up and get the house ready. And she knows that the final task is to mop that floor. Once she finished mopping that floor, she knows my job is done. The house is fully prepared. We are ready for the Sabbath. As soon as she gets down to almost the last few strokes of that mop, all of a sudden she hears the footsteps of her little son, Johnny. Little son, Johnny comes, bursts through the door, boom, and he has mud all over his shoes. And he runs right across that nice, clean floor. Now, if mother wants a clean floor, what is she going to have to do? She's going to have to mop it all over again. So mother starts to mop again. And she starts mopping and mopping and mopping. She's almost done. And then all of a sudden, she hears the footsteps of little Johnny. Footsteps of little Johnny comes in. Boom, he bursts through the door. And he has mud all over his shoes. And he tracks mud all over the floor. If mother wants a clean floor, what is she going to have to do? Amen, you got it right. If mother wants a clean floor, she has to get Johnny to stop tracking mud in the house. Since 1844, Jesus entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And when he entered that most holy place, he did not enter there to simply forgive man's sins. He did not enter there to simply cover man's sins. When Christ entered the most holy place, you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to blot man's sins out so that he can cleanse the sanctuary. But do you know what the problem is? Jesus has a bunch of little Johnnies. Jesus has a bunch of little Johnnies that love mud more than cleanliness, that love sin more than righteousness. You know, brothers and sisters, to be like Jesus means that you would also have the same feelings in him that he carried. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 1 about Jesus, it says he hated 
iniquity, and he loved righteousness. You know why we keep falling into sin? Because we love sin more than we love righteousness. And Christ says, I need to do a heart transplant. And brothers and sisters, any heart transplant, first of all, needs a surgeon. And his name is Jesus. But in addition to that, you also need an environment for that heart transplant to take place. And you know what that environment is? Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Jesus says that through this process of the sanctuary, I will show you how I can take a heart of stone. And by the time I'm finished with it, I will make it a heart of flesh. And Christ says that though this may be impossible with man, all things are possible with God. And therefore, brothers and sisters, it has been rightly entitled, lest we forget for this week. And you know why? Because, brothers and sisters, we are simply told, we have nothing to fear for the future. Except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. And this study of the sanctuary beginning tomorrow, I'm going to show you the heart surgery process that Christ is going to do through the sanctuary message and how he can help us to finally love righteousness and hate iniquity. And so tomorrow we're going to begin with a very important topic as we deal with a topic that we are going to call our position our work and it begins tomorrow morning we're going to study the sanctuary perhaps like we've never studied it before and so I'm looking forward to seeing each and every one of us and if there be anyone tonight that says in their hearts that you know what I can see that I understand time a little better and now I know what to do and if you're saying brothers and sisters that you realize that you're unprepared for this crisis because brothers and sisters this crisis is for real the only reason why a Sunday law has not passed in America is because we are not ready. The world is fully and completely prepared. We are not ready. You know, volume five of the testimony to the church, page 717 and 718 says that God's people should be falling on their knees and crying out to God saying, Lord, give us just a few more years to get it right. And that should be one of your prayers while you're here on these campgrounds. Lord, give us a few more years not to get married, not so I can get my career, not so I can go ahead and do what I want to do, but Lord, give me a few more years so I can get ready and I can reach as many people as possible and help them get ready. And if that's your desire, brothers and sisters, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We are praying, Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that Jesus' method was truly effective. He preached based on time, and he helped us to understand what to do. And Father, we realize tonight more clearly what time it is, and we realize that time is almost finished. And the question is, do you reflect the lovely image of Jesus as you should? 
And Lord, I pray, help us all to realize tonight that this is the great work that you are calling us to do, to awake to righteousness, Christ our righteousness, to realize that we must reflect this image even before this Sunday law test comes to us. Because once the test comes, Father, to each of us as individuals, whatever decision we make, it's eternal. And Lord, our desire is that we might make the right decision because we had the right experience so that when the test comes, we may pass and receive the seal of God rather than the mark of the beast. And so, Lord, please create a sense of urgency. Remove the stupidity and the lethargy that has taken possession of so many of us, dear God. Help us to live up to the light that we have received. Help us to get back to our foundations. Bring us into an experience of true revival that will lead to true reformation. And may by faith we meet with thee even in the sanctuary above where is our greatest shelter during the storms that are getting ready to blow in this world and take the majority of the people in this world as an overwhelming surprise. May you keep us all faithful even unto death for it is then and only then that we shall receive our crown of life. We thank you dear God for making this revelation more clearer to us. Continue to complete the work that you have started within us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.